Hi, everyone. Welcome to Lessons from the Lab. My name is Devin Rubin from Mayo Clinic in sunny Jacksonville, Florida on this nice January afternoon. I hope everyone's year is off to a great start. I hope everyone had nice holidays and is learning and helping patients for the beginning of the, the first couple of weeks of the year. Uh, I've been excited for this episode. I have a very well-known guest he is uh, an expert in many things, including EMG, including neuromuscular ultrasound. This is someone who I've learned from over the years as I've listened to him. I pretty much learn every time I listen to him speak. Uh, I've shared some cases with him in the past. I've sent him some ultrasounds from which I've learned from, and it's Dr. David Preston. Uh, I have an interesting case, a challenging case that I've been saving up for him. It has a lot of teaching points, so I'm interested in her, his perspective, and uh, hopefully everyone will enjoy it and learn from it. So enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Lessons from the Lab, and I'm excited to have our guest, Dr. David Preston. I don't think Dr. Preston needs any introduction. I think everyone knows you. Uh, Dr. Preston's a professor of neurology at Case Western Reserve University. He's a uh, director of the Neuromuscular Ultrasound Lab, co-director of EMG Lab. He's written the quintessential textbook on EMG that I refer all of our residents to. And uh, it's great to have him. So I look forward to learning uh, from you, Dave, as I always do. So welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. How's 2024 treating you? Uh, it's off to a bang. <laughs> off to a bang. Do you have any EMG or ultrasound resolutions for this year? You know, ours is a little bit complicated because our uh, institution just made a transition to EPIC. So we're trying to like kind of get back to square zero with our EMG laboratory and our uh, ultrasound laboratory as far as requisitions, um, reporting, billing. So we're wor still working on that. So that's my big resolution is trying to get back to where we were in EPIC. Is to sur survive epic. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was uh, thinking about incorporating more AI into practice. And I, mm -hmm. and I had a patient um, last week that I was doing an EMG. And I thought I, I had the key to AI because we were talking. And I think I said the word serious and Siri came on I her bet. phone. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, why don't we ask Siri what your problem is? So she goes, hey, Siri, what's my problem? She goes, Siri, what's my problem? And Siri said, you don't have any problem. So I said, oh, you don't need the EMG. We have the answer with Siri now. So uh, <laughs> I, I want you to know my phone's right here and Siri just turned on. Yeah, so did mine too. So <laughs> you said that, yes. <laughs> so if you, if, if, you know, if we get stump stumped on anything we're talking about, we can both ask Siri. Absolutely. So, so anyway, I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, as you may know, the the goal of the lessons from the lab is really to educate the viewers or listeners um, and, and learn from each other. And um, what I typically do is I present a case okay. um, and kind of pick your brain and kind of have you talk through how you would approach this, what you might do in the EMG lab. Um, this, because you're such a smart guy, I have an interesting and a, a bit of a challenging case that that I think I'm interested in how you would interpret some okay. of this. So 
So I'm going to just give you, I'm going to share my screen here. And um, can you see the... Uh, I, I sure can. Yep. Okay. So basically, real quick history. It's pretty straightforward history. This is a 76-year-old man we saw in the lab a couple weeks ago. Um, he's healthy. He only has AFib. And his symptoms began about nine weeks prior to his EMG, where he started noticing some difficulty walking, his leg, his right leg buckled. And um, and then over the course of the next few weeks, his leg weakness worsened. He had about seven or eight falls just because the legs would give out. So he felt like his balance was worsening. He started using a walker to prevent the falling. He did have some paresthesias in his toes and, a, and feet and a little bit of paresthesias in his fingers. Hmm. Um, but he didn't have any weakness in his arms. He had no bulbar symptoms, no pain at all, no bowel or bladder dysfunction. It really was this leg weakness and distal paresthesias in arms and legs. And on his exam, and just for the listeners who can't see this, um, and this, I'm showing you the table of his motor exam. So his, his neurologic exam was notable for distal and proximal weakness. This is the Mayo scale, so zero okay. being normal. Um, so it was kind of moderate weakness distally in his hands, more severe weakness distally in his legs from his hamstrings down to the to the feet. Um, but he also had proximal weakness in his hip girdle and a bit of proximal weakness in his arms uh, in, around the shoulders symmetrically. And he had absent reflexes and he had some decreased sensation to all modalities to about the knees. Okay. Well, you know, hearing this story, one of my rules has always been that uh, if a person's on anticoagulation and they develop some type of neurological problem, it's due to bleeding until otherwise proven. I always think about that. Although as you go along with this case, uh, that does not appear to be the case. However, when you first started with uh, his leg buckling, it uh, made me think about quadricep weakness. And of course, on Eliquis made me think about, could he have a retroperitoneal uh, hemorrhage, because that's a place where spontaneous hemorrhages occur, especially when you um, uh, are on anticoagulation. Although admittedly, many of those are more acute than this, and often they're quite painful, and you tend to uh, hold your leg, uh, your hip flex, and externally rotated. But that crossed my mind about somebody who was on anticoagulation. Could this be a lumbar flexopathy from a um, from a uh, anticoagulation retroperitoneal hemorrhage? Um, the other thing that crossed my mind, of course, is an older man who developed quadricep weakness. Could he develop? Uh, could he be developing inclusion body myositis? Because inclusion body myositis is the most common uh, inflammatory neuropathy over age 50, um, and it loves to affect the quadriceps and it loves to, to start asymmetrically. So that crossed my mind too. However, as we know, IBM tends to progress very slowly usually over years or decades. So the fact that it was going to the other leg that quickly would that make would make that very, very unlikely. And then of course, then you get the uh, paresthesias that mark this as not being you know, muscle because we won't, won't, won't expect uh, uh, sensory symptoms, at least in a primary muscle disease, which makes IBM, you're kind of throwing that out and you're going back more into the peripheral neuropathy category here. Now, the fact that it started in one leg is somewhat important because whenever you see asymmetry in peripheral neuropathies, it does make you think of more unusual things because the vast majority of peripheral neuropathies are axonal. The vast majority of peripheral neuropathies are 
metabolic, toxic, drug-induced, or genetic, and by and by, the vast majority of those are symmetric. So whenever you see asymmetry, it makes you think about something, you know, structural or even microscopically structural, something more unusual. And of course, then you go on here and you have a couple uh, interesting findings that you have distal and proximal weakness. You do have distal weakness, which is worse. And I will say in any type of neuropathic thing, your distal muscles get it more than your proximal muscles. So I don't even care if you have a uh, high median neuropathy. Uh, your distal median muscles will still get it more than your proximal median muscles. However, it does kind of suggest that you may have, you know, proximal and distal weakness and maybe breaking a little bit of the um, length-dependent rule. And that is the length-dependent rule for your typical, you know, toxic metabolic axonal neuropathy. It starts in your toes and then it ascends uh, to your uh, feet and then ascends to your lower calf, then your mid-calf. Then by the time you get to the mid-upper calf, that's when your fingertips start to go because the length of your cord to your fingertips is roughly the length of your lumbosacral cord to the mid-upper calf, and that's why it's stocking glove. But in this case, you have the quadricep giving out first, so that's unusual. You break the, the stocking glove rule. And then on your exam, you also have, you know, significant proximal as well as distal weakness. And then, of course, you have something that's very, very important, that you have no reflexes. You have no reflexes. So as we all know, the typical axonal neuropathy, what do you get? You typically, your ankle jerks are gone, your knee jerks are hypoactive, and your upper extremities work okay. That's the typical thing. So when you see someone with A-reflexia, that is unusual, and that certainly increases your uh, uh, red flag for could this be a demyelinating condition, because demyelination likes to lose your reflexes. Now, one thing in the back of our mind I have to keep, keep in mind of is that, you know, we think of chakramary tooth, you know, obviously being the most common inherited neuropathy that usually starts in uh, as, a, as a young person, as, a, as, as a, a child or a teenager. But there are many people with chakramary tooth that it's so mild that, and it's so slowly progressive, that it's the way they've always been. And it's not unusual for neuromuscular doctors to diagnose someone with chakramary tooth at age, you know, 60, 70, 80. And you say, how is that possible? Because it's the way they've always been and it's never bothered them until you eventually get the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back. However, with this history, you are kind of thinking about, could this be an acquired demyelinating neuropathy based on the fact that there's some asymmetry, it's proximal and distal, and you have global areflexia. And, and so, first of all, for anyone who wants to kind of talk through a differential diagnosis, the way you do it is the way everyone should do it. So, I mean, it's so clear. And, you know, that this is, um, you know, those thoughts went through our minds. And I, and I think, so I guess the question I would say is with all those possibilities, and this is, I guess, what we ask our residents, what's your, what would be the number one localization of, of the possibilities? I, I think you said it, but just for yeah. listening. Yeah, I, th I think that the number one thing you think about here is uh, CIDP, which is chronic inflammatory demyeline polyneuropathy, but it's actually really chronic uh, inflammatory demyeline polyradiculoneuropathy. Um, that would be the number one thing, being acquired, being asymmetric, being proximal distal with a, a with areflexia. That would be the highest thing on your list here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and, and that was what we were thinking for the reasons that you said. So the question I would have then is if this was the your 
patient after lunch and, and they're in the EMG lab, what do you do in your lab? Like what, what do you start with conduction studies? Do you start with ultrasound? Uh, do you needle someone on Eloquis? You know, what, what would you do? Yeah. Well, first of all, as far as what I would do first, I think that a patient like this, I think you quickly come to the conclusion they have some type of neuropathy. And I think the first decision node is, is it axonal or is it demyelinating? which you can best make that determination by uh, nerve conduction studies. Because I think in general, nerve conduction studies are really good at picking up demyelination. They're obviously incredibly good for picking up inherited demyelination, but they're also very good to picking up acquired demyelination with rare exceptions that your demyelination may be more proximal in areas that we don't study uh, quite as much or quite as efficiently. So I think nerve conduction studies would be the first thing to do because for the sake of argument, if the nerve conduction studies say it's a demyelinating neuropathy, then your whole differential diagnosis has changed because then you start thinking about is it inherited or is it acquired demyelinating neuropathy as opposed to it's an axonal neuropathy, an axonal pattern, which has a totally different differential diagnosis. And as we know, probably well over 95% of all neuropathies are axonal or primary axonal when it comes to uh, electrophysiology. For instance, if you have a demyelinating neuropathy by nerve conduction studies, okay, we don't have to check the hemoglobin A1C. We don't have to check the TSH, all right? This type of thing, all right? We can actually be much more specific in our testing. Now, as far as your second question goes about Eliquis, what do you do about that? I think the bottom line is that this has been somewhat a controversial thing for many, many years in neurology, but I think it's really been worked out and I, I think that we've helped, helped uh, uh, kind of like spread the message. And that is that I think anytime you do any test, you're always balancing risks versus benefits. So as I say to my patients, I say, you know, when you came to see me today, you took a risk. You got in your car and you drove to the office. Now, some idiot could have crashed into you and killed you. All right. Now, I get it. That risk was very, very low. So you came to the conclusion that visiting the doctor, the benefit outweighed the risk, and that's absolutely true. So then you have to say, hey, with anticoagulation, does the benefit outweigh the risk? Well, there's a couple ways of approaching anticoagulation. One could be, you could say, I'm not gonna do the needle examination because I'm worried that it's gonna cause undue bleeding. But if you don't do the needle examination, you're depriving the patient of a important diagnostic tests that they may need. So for instance, in myopathy, it obviously relies upon the needle EMG. In radiculopathy, it relies upon the needle EMG. In motor neuron disease, it relies upon the needle EMG. So not doing the needle EMG is not very good when you're thinking about especially certain diagnoses. The other thing that you could, that you could do, you could say, well, I'm going to stop the Eliquis, or I'm going to recommend, rather, that the primary doctor stop the Eliquis. Well, I've done a lot of work on this, and it works out that if you take atrial fibrillation, the most common cause why people are on anticoagulation, it works out the risk of not being anticoagulated, and I realize it varies by depending on your risk factors, is approximately 3% a year. So if you stop someone several days beforehand, do the procedure, start it, you are put, the risk of having, say, a stroke is approximately one in a thousand, okay? Approximately one in a thousand. And of course, the stroke could be mild or the stroke could be terrible. Well, it works out one in a thousand is not one in a million, right? So that's like an undue risk. And I'm not willing to take that risk. 
honestly. I'm not willing to take that risk. Um, now, you could go crazy and say, okay, we're going to admit you to the hospital, put you on IV heparin, then we'll wait and stop the heparin, do the EMG, but that's going to be thousands and thousands of dollars, and that's not very useful. So what we have done for many, many years when it comes to anticoagulation is that we do it provided we think that the benefit outweighs the risk. We use a small needle. We only do superficial muscles that we can tamponade, and we do areas where if you developed a hematoma, it is not associated with, say, a compartment syndrome. So for instance, we would not do the tibialis posterior, where you cannot, super, where you cannot tamponade you know, from the surface. I would not do the gluteus maximus. I would not do the pronator teres. I would also not do muscles that are near main blood vessels. So even though our goal is not to get into blood vessels, but it's like the, the iliacus right next to the femoral vessels. I would not do that. All right, I would not do that. So I think as long as you do superficial muscles that you can tamponade, it's, and you, it goes fine. So if you said to yourself, hey, I did the first dorsal osseus. Let's say I did develop a hematoma there. Anything really bad happen? The answer is no. So the first dorsal osseus is fine. And the biceps is fine. And the triceps is fine. And the deltoid is fine. The tibialis anterior, the gastroc, the quadriceps are fine. So you can still get reasonable information. So our view of it is that we do it on all people with anticoagulation. Now, there might be some diagnoses that you'd say to yourself, I feel so confident about the diagnosis, the nerve conduction study is sufficient. So it's like, hey, this person's coming with question carpal tunnel, and the median distal latency is markedly prolonged in a demyelinating range. The sensory potential is the same, okay? And the ulnar and radials are all normal. You feel very confident. Okay, with that, I'd probably pass on the needle EMG. Yeah. No, that's a really thorough answer. And I, I, we, we're, I'm aligned with you. I, I think I might even have a, a, a higher threshold for, for not doing muscles. So I, I'm not too concerned like pronator teres. And, and, you know, Andrea Boone did a study a number of years Absolutely. ago with ultrasound and she did some muscles like FPL and iliopsoas close to vessels and there was no risk of hematomas. So, right. or minimal. Well, actually this, this came upon years ago that my former fellow, Jim Karras, who wrote this up is that uh, we did a needle EMG for radiculopathy and a person who just happened to have their MRI scan done that morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sorry, the MRI scan was right after the needle EMG. And it showed this, quote, mass in the um, in the paraspinal muscles. And it wasn't perfectly clear what it was. And believe it or not, in the end, it ended up, be ended up being biopsied. And it was a organizing hematoma, which then made uh, Jim look back at other cases that had had MRI scan following uh, EMG, and he found a few patients, they were always asymptomatic. Yeah, right, right. So I think the take-home point is we still stick muscles. Absolutely. We're a little more cautious. We go over the risks with the patient, but the risk is very low. And when it's important, we should still be performing the needle exam. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, great. All right. I want to get into these findings. So so you would do the nerve conduction studies and just, just some like summarizing what when you approach this, do you do the leg first because his legs symptoms are worse? Probably. Or? Yeah. That, I think generally speaking, we'll do the leg first. We'll do, in other words, it's like the Willie Sutton rule, go where the money is. Yeah. All right. Okay. So if the major symptoms are there because there are rare patients who don't tolerate the tests. Yeah. The vast majority do just fine. But for the right. rare person who doesn't tolerate the tests, hey, go where the money is. Okay. So I want to show you a few of the nerve conduction studies that we did. Sure. Um, and we can kind of go through them quickly or see if there's sure. 
some points. So, the, so we started in the leg. This is the fibular motor. And for those um, who are just listening and not seeing, just to, to highlight the ones that the values that are out of our reference range was the conduction velocity was 35 meters per second, but everything else was within our normal range. Okay. So that's just like very mild slowing, mild slowing. Yeah. Okay. And then do you, would you do F waves in this? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, we For demonic neuropathy, you like to do F waves, but the one exception would be the perineal. And the perineal F waves, in many normal people, the F waves are very impersistent. Indeed, there are some normal individuals that you will not get the F waves in the perineal, as opposed to, say, the tibial F waves, which are typically 90 to 100% persistent. Median and ulnar are typically above 50% persistent. So the perineal is the one I might not be that crazy about doing. Okay. Well, we were we were crazy about doing it. So Fine. We okay, good. good. <laughs> so... Do you want to comment on? Yeah, so you look at this and you see the C-maps uh, uh, superimposed perfectly. And then there's a response that follows the C-map. And you'll have to help me out here and say, what is the uh, the, the time base here? Uh, this is, well, this marker is at 19 oh. milliseconds. So it's five milliseconds here. Five milliseconds. Okay. So there's a, let's see. At, oh, uh, I'm sorry. No, 10. It's 10. 10. This is at, this All is right, so 10. 50, so 30. roughly at, at, roughly at uh, 20 milliseconds, there's a potential that repeats, and it almost repeats perfectly, which yeah. is what people call kind of an A wave, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that you can that you can classically see in re-innervation. Uh, um, uh, you can also see it with re-innervation if you're not super maximal. But it has he also has been described in the myelinating neuropathies mm -hmm. as some type of a faptic uh, transmission thing. So yeah. then the stuff that fouls is presumably the F waves. And, you know, you still have to kind of like make out, are these like F waves slash, are they just motor units that are going through? Yeah. Because like trace number three and trace number five, those look pretty similar, but they're really far apart. So they might be motor units. So I'm not 100% yeah. sure. So I would I would call this equivocal. I'm not sure what I'd do with it. Yeah, same with us. I mean, it's there's a lot there. Um yeah. and so, you know, sometimes our techs are really good. They'll mark it, but you know, we encourage them if you're not sure if it's an F wave, don't mark it because some exactly. people aren't scrutinizing it carefully and they'll just assume it's an F wave because the marker's mm -hmm. there. So okay. All right, that re reinforces why I wanted to do the perineal wave. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, here's the tibial. So, All right, so the tibial has a has a has a, has a good amplitude of five point four millivolts. The distal latency is fine. The velocity is ident identical to the perineal, thirty five, so it's slightly slow. Now, is it a little bit dispersed? Approximately, is the amplitude a little bit lower? Approximately, yes. But we know the tibial is the one exception for complex reasons why the to, to quote call a conduction block is much more problematic with the tibial compared to other uh, other muscles. Um, okay. So. We'd walk away from that and say, okay, there's definitely some mild slowing of the tibial nerve. Okay. Now, I would definitely would do the tibial F responses. I knew you would. So I'm going to show them to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's so. what's very interesting here. So now, when you look at this, what you see is you see excellent CMAP. So you know you're stimulating supermaximally. They superimpose perfectly. And you do not see any waveform that is clearly an F response. You see something way far out, which repeats almost perfectly on it which looks like, or, you know, or, you know, there are such things as repeater F. So this more looks like 
you know, what people would call, you know, A waves or, you know, this time, I would probably call this to say there's no F waves here, but there is one potential that is in the same morphology at the same latency. And this could be an A wave from reinnervation, although it's really far out, or it's some type of a faptic thing that occurs in demyelination. And then I don't know if you can see this well from your screen, but what about this down here? It's superimposed, the bottom trace. Right. So, so, so what about this so, and yeah, this uh, and this? Yeah, earlier on, they, they all seem to superimpose, or they come very close to superimposing. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, but as far as, you know, typical F waves are usually very well developed. They're polyphasic. You know, they're very easy to see. Mm. And boy, these things really do superimpose pretty damn well. So you think these are all A waves? I do. Yeah. Okay. We'll come back to that. Here's the Searle. He's 76. So, we so did... Searle. So you see the Searle, and I take it the top trace is what you're... Yeah, um... this is at 7 centimeters, middle's 14. This is a C point at 21 So you do this ABC thing, huh? Okay. Yeah. I just do one. I just do a one thing. You do B. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so which, which one's at 14? It's the middle one, huh? Yeah, the middle. Yeah. Well, here, here's like a classic problem. So at 14, the amplitude is three microvolts. So the question is, what do you do with three microvolts in a 76-year-old, all right? Because as we all know, a long, long time ago at the Mayo Clinic, if you had, if your Searle was absent and you were older than age 60, it was, quote, considered normal. Now, that's before the amplifiers were better, the, the filters were better, the, the uh, averaging wasn't uh, even possible. Um, so now it's like, okay, is that potential base? How about that? It's certainly there. It's certainly yeah. there. Um, and it's either normal for age or it's slightly low. How about yeah. that? So it's kind of one of those things you put to the side for now. And, Absolutely. And, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So then I we don't went. I what to do with that. Yeah. yeah. I'm the same way. Okay. So then we go here. We went up to the arm. So here's the median antidromic. Um, okay. So the median antidromic is really abnormal. The amplitude is three microvolts. Okay, it's going 31 meters per, I'm sorry, it's going um, 42 meters per second. So that's moderately slow um, and it's clearly dispersed. So that median's definitely abnormal. Okay, yeah. definitely abnormal. Now, of course, people have this, this tendency to say, oh, it's just carpal tunnel. Well, first of all, carpal tunnel syndrome is a clinical syndrome, all right, of pain and paresthesias in the median distribution caused by entrapment of the median nerve at the wrist, as opposed to just median neuropathy at the wrist. So could he have a, quote, incidental median neuropathy at the wrist? Well, I guess. However, the guy's symptomatic there. So I would say this is kind of a real thing, that he really does have a median neuropathy here. So how do you, how do you separate that out in your lab with nerve conductions to know, is this something separate or is this part of a diffuse problem? This well, nerve... I think that when you, when you get uh, as far as, to, this is where the, quote, internal comparison studies can help you out. So if you compare like median digit four to ulnar digit four, if you compare the lumbrical interosseous, which is median versus ulnar, um, that can help. So, oh, or of course the classic one, which is probably the best one, which is the Palmar mixed study uh, across the wrist. Um, again, if you had a diffuse neuropathy, you'd expect the speeds to be somewhat similar where as opposed to, hey, is the median out of proportion to a nearby nerve? Yeah. And what we did here is we just simply did an ulnar antidromic to the fifth digit. Exactly. So now you have the ant, uh, ortho antidromic, and you can either say it's absent or it's incredibly low. Okay. 
Now, for me to, quote, believe it, I'd like to see it averaged, actually, tell you the truth. But the same, the bottom line is that both the mean and the ulnar are very low. Yeah. So it's, this would cross your mind at this point about this whole issue about serial sparing. And that is, gee, your median and ulnar are both low, but your serial is still present and could be considered normal for age. I'd be much happier if your serial was 10, of course, yeah. to say serial sparing. Right. But I think that you can definitely say from this, hey, the sensory nervous system here is definitely affected. There's definitely yeah. a neuropathy. Right. Okay. And yeah. I and I guess from the for, from the localization standpoint, and you mentioned this at the beginning, if you're thinking of a polyradiculoneuropathy, this would be so far consistent versus a pure preganglionic polyradiculopathy in which you'd expect the sensories technically to be normal. To be totally normal, right. Yeah. So if you have a lesion proximal dose of a ganglion, the snaps are intact. Yeah. And as okay. I tell my fellows, that is the case 99.99% of the time. Or as I tell my residents, that's the case 100% of the time. That the sensories are always normal and lesions proximal dose of ganglion. And then they say, well, is there some exception? I say, well, there might be, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Yeah. Because if you say, if you say the sensories are always normal in preganglionic lesions, you'll be correct 99.9% .9 of the time. Yeah. That's pretty damn good. Okay. I say that in in <laughs> getting to the I say the same thing getting to this next slide, that if you have a big drop in a, an ulnar motor between the wrist and the below elbow. Right always a crossover exactly. exactly except for the times that it's not but <laughs> except for the time it's not so here what you have your ulnar motor and you have a lovely cmap distal cmap of 5.8 microvolts for this age i would call that normal but you have a gigantic drop between that and below the elbow from 5.8 down to 3.2 so it's dramatically gone down um so you'd say oh this could be a crossover of martin gruber anastomosis immune to ulnar crossover which is pretty damn common and of course, the way we check for that is that you then stimulate the median nerve at the wrist while you're recording the ulnar muscle, the uh, hypothenar muscles, and you expect a small positive deflection, which represents that you have a, uh, uh, a CMAP at a distance. Uh, and then when you then stimulate the median nerve at the elbow, you either get nothing or you get a very similar thing. If you have a Martin Gruber anastomosis, when you stimulate the elbow, then you get a potential. Yeah. And usually the difference between that potential and the one on the wrist is pretty similar to the difference between the drop of the ulnar. So here you've done a good job. You've proved this is not a Martin Gruber anastomosis. And yeah. now you're thinking, okay, this looks like it's a, uh, a crossover, a crossover in the forearm segment. Um, so that's very important, very important. So you uh, think you think this is this is a crossover or no? This... I think it is not a crossover. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You've done a good yeah. job improving right. that it's not Making a crossover. Not. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So this is very this is very uh, I would say this is a conduction block. Yeah. Now we all know that uh, back in uh, 1992, when Dr. Pestronk uh, first reported on multifocal motor neuropathy conduction block, that the entire EMG world went kind of crazy about what the definition of a conduction block is and how do you tell a conduction block versus temporal dispersion slash phase cancellation. And we can get into that if we want to. However, the bottom line is that terrible temporal dispersion and phase cancellation is usually demyelination too uh, as its conduction block. So I would still say that this looks for this looks like 
pretty good evidence. Of so I, I, I guess, yeah, I kind of want to get into that a little bit. I'm going to, sure. because the question, I'm going to show you real quick, but let's come back to that in a moment because sure. I want to pay attention to the, the waveforms here, but also the velocity is 36. So it's not horribly slowed. But let me, before you comment, just to show ulnar F waves also showed A waves. Okay, good. So the, there's no F waves here. So they're all A waves. They all superimpose, which again, a normal persistence for ulnar F waves are definitely above 50%. Yeah. Got to be fair. If you don't get something, you should do gendrastic maneuver and see if you can, quote, prime your anterior horn cells. But boy, this would be definitely abnormal. And yep. I think the fact that there's multiple A waves, as you said earlier, now we have three nerves. If we trust you fibular that you have multiple A waves. And then the last nerve conduction, I'm going to show you the median. Okay, oh. so the median, now the median here, now the distal latency is prolonged at 5.4. So with an amplitude of 5.5, that's in a demolinating range. Because I still hold the old thing about if you're 130%, the upper limit of normal, uh, that's demolinating. So 5.4 is demolinating for me. And the other thing for the people who can't see it, it really is dispersed. The duration really goes up on the proximal stimulation and the velocity is 37 meters per second. Okay, 37 meters per second, that's demyelinating. So let's go back to that. So, you know, there are many different criteria for demyelination, depending if it's acute or if it's chronic, but most people will use, hey, is it 70 or 75% the lower limit of normal? Well, the lower limit of normal is typically around 50 meters per second for the median. So, you know, 75% or 70% of uh, 50 is around 35, 37 meters per second. So right at that point, you'd say, boy, that velocity is right on the borderline of being unequivocally demyelinating. But the question is, why do you get slow? How, why, isn't it, why isn't it demyelinating? Because if you have terrible axonal loss and you lose all your fast fibers, all right, you can get some slowing and axonal loss, but you never get it below, you know, 70 or 75% the lower limit of normal. So then what comes up is that if I say to you, well, what if I got a patient who's got a velocity of a median velocity of 35, 37 meters per second? I can't tell. Well, that's actually not true. Like most things in EMG, it's not one piece of data. It's putting pieces of data together. So now you say, hey, I have a normal amplitude with a velocity of 37, that's demyelinating because if it was axonal loss, your CMAP should be shot. The amplitude, you know, as if the CMAP is 0.1 and it's going 37 meters per second, okay, then maybe it's the world's worst case axonal loss and you're down to your last slow, normal myelinated axon. But yeah. for this amplitude, a velocity of 37 is demyelinating. So here you have a demyelinating distal latency you have a demyelinating conduction velocity, and you really do have prominent temporal dispersion. Yeah, uh, on proximal I think this, is the, this is probably the one nerve that the temporal dispersion is more definite more than definite. all the others. You think yeah. there's multiple A waves in the median nerve here? Uh, let's see. Want, if you you want to, that one. Yeah, go to that one. You want to bet on it? Uh, I'll, I'll bet. I will bet there's no F waves. How about that? Okay. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So there's no F waves, but you could see how someone very easily could misinterpret this and say, oh, look at this. The F waves look fine. Yeah. Now, remember the F waves, the way the F waves work is every time that you stimulate a nerve and it goes antidromically and orthodromically, when it goes up to the anterior horn cell, one to three, one to 5% of anterior horn cells backfire, 
but it's a different pop subpopulation each time. So the F wave changes every time. The one exception might be, hey, I have really late stage ALS and I have very few anterior horn cells left. So maybe you'll see some so-called repeater F waves. However, when you see this type of thing repeating, it's usually an A wave and yeah. they really superimpose perfectly at the exact same latency. So there's yeah. no F responses and you have these A waves as well. Yeah. So now so, in summary, you actually have, you know, you have, you have a motor and sensory problem for sure. You have the upper extremities that have conduction block that have demyelinating velocities. You have no F responses. So at this point, I think you can say with great confidence that you have a motor and sensory demyelinating polyneuropathy. Now you can go one step further because the presence of temporal dispersion and conduction block is generally not seen in inherited conditions. So you do not see it in Chakramri tooth. So, the, so how we separate out inherited versus acquired, there's two big things. Number one is the presence of symmetry. Because in Chakramri tooth, your right median is gonna look like your left median and your right median is gonna look like your right ulnar. It's gonna be very symmetric. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the presence of conduction block slash temporal dispersion, because usually in acquired demyelinating neuropathies, they're really multifocal. So conduction block, you don't see in inherited things. Mm -hmm. The exception would be hereditary neuropathy with liability or pressure palsies, HMPP, but that tends to be at entrapment sites. Yeah. The other, yeah, the other exception, which is pretty damn rare, would be in Dejerine Sota syndrome. And that is the most severe demyelinating neuropathy of childhood, where usually the velocities are the lowest ever recorded by man, typically around six meters per second, that, that there is so much dispersion that there ends up being phase cancellation, and you can misinterpret that as conduction block. But generally speaking, the presence of conduction block means acquired demyelination. Yeah, the other one is CMTX. That that occasionally you can see conduction block. I, I've had we've had a couple of patients where right. it looks it looks kind of acquired, but yeah, but it's symmetric and it's distal yeah. predominant. Yeah. So you never so, say never, never say never, but you can say yeah, most exactly. consistent, most consistent. So this motor and sensory uh, excellent yeah. demyelinating neuropathy. Yeah. Right. So this patient, I'm not going to go into detail about the needle. I did do a needle exam. It showed uh, he didn't bleed, so that was good. That's good. And yeah. it showed. Um, reduced recruitment in distal more than proximal muscles. This was mm. again, nine weeks out. So no fibs, uh, really no motor unit changes, but he had reduced recruitment, which goes along with, with conduction. Right, so that's very important. So if you think about, if you have a person who has a pure slowing, what does their needle EMG look like? It's actually totally normal because the impulse gets to all the neural muscle junctions, all the muscle fibers, they still fire. There's a, it's totally normal. It's conduction block that certain fibers don't fire. So the only thing you can do is the ones that you have left over of have to fire faster. And we recognize that as decreased recruitment. Yeah. The other place where you see decreased recruitment, of course, is with acute axonal loss. So if you like infarct your nerve today and you become profoundly weak today, um, you'll have decreased recruitment by itself before weeks have transpired where you get denervation before weeks to months have transpired before you get re-innervation. So kind of acute subacute axonal loss, but usually it's demyelination with conduction block is where you see the pure 
decrease recruitment. Yeah. So it, so it sounds like you're pretty convinced, uh, as you said, this is a demyelinating polyneuropathy or polyradiculopathy. Right. Um, and, and, just, of, and you always have to go back to your history and exam, yeah. which fits. It's kind of subacute. It started some with some asymmetry. It's proximal and distal, and you lost your reflexes. Yeah. And, and just to, I don't want to go into this, but I put a slide here um, for the criteria that you were alluding to. This, this is from the, the, most recent uh, joint task force uh, for CIDP criteria for motor velocity. And you alluded to this, that motor right. velocity has to be more than 70% of lower limit of normal. And then there's different criteria for conduction block that vary. But but this is a nice reference for those listeners who want to get references of how you how do you interpret these. But I think exactly. your point is you can't make an, it's not an absolute. It's putting all it's these- Not an absolute, right. Yeah. And I would say of all, you know, there's probably like over 10 criteria for acquired demyelination been published over the years that this one, the ones you have up now, is the one that really most people follow. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I want to ask you about this case is would you ultrasound the nerves? Do you do that? Well, in your it's, a, it's an interesting question. Would you ultrasound the nerves? Because as we know, when it comes to demyelinating neuropathies, uh, most demyelinating neuropathies are, are hypertrophic neuropathies. And even though this is not a case of sarcomere tooth, it works out that sarcomere tooth used to be known as hypertrophic neuropathy of childhood because you could actually palpate the nerves because they were so large. We all know there's cases of sarcomere tooth and actually CIDP where people develop lumbar stenosis or actually cervical myelopathy because their nerve roots are so large, they actually fill the canal, they become hypertrophic. So it works out that ultrasound has become a very nice adjunct a very nice adjunct in the diagnosis of demyelinating neuropathy. And it really comes, um, I think it's a really useful thing to do under certain circumstances. And that is that if you can make the diagnosis of unequivocal demyelinating neuropathy, like you did in this case, do you need the ultrasound? The answer is no, you don't. I'll come back to an exception in a moment. However, let's say you have someone whose all their responses are absent. And we've had cases like this. Someone comes with a terrible neuropathy and every CMAP is gone and every SNAP is gone. Well, you know, there's a severe neuropathy, but you really can't ca characterize its physiology. Ultrasound really can shine there because if you see a hypertrophic neuropathy, then you know you're dealing with, with a demonic neuropathy. Yeah. The other place where it shines in neuropathy is that if your electrophysiology is, quote, indeterminate, which I means, hey, your median conduction velocity is going 41 meters per second and your perineal is going 29 meters per second. And it's very close to that, you know, I've dropped 30%, but you know, you're kind of like in between, you're kind of in no, no man's land. I think it can actually help you in that situation for sure, um, that, that situation for sure. The other place where it can help you is that somebody has a distinctly unusual neuropathy that's progressive and severe, and you do not have an obvious answer. You do not have an obvious answer because when it comes to CIDP, you don't want to miss CIDP because it's potentially treatable. So there's a whole coast, whole host of cases that were reported several decades ago where people, most of their quote conduction blocks were actually proximal. So a long time ago, we did all this work with root stimulation, herbs point stimulation, x-ray stimulation, trying to show conduction blocks, which were quite proximal. And of course you can do that but it's all, it's very technically demanding 
And you always have to ask yourself, is it real or not? And yeah. that's a tough thing to do. That's a tough right. thing to do. And there, so there definitely are cases of demonic neuropathy where most of the action is proximal. So yeah. with ultrasound, you can, you know, image the the uh, the, uh, the the trunks, the brachial plexus very easily. You can uh, uh, you can do the uh, upper proximal nerves, especially mean and ulnar, very easily. So it's an adjunct there. Now, getting back to your case, would you ultrasound it? One reason you might want to ultrasound it is it was a very nice uh, paper by uh, Craig Zeidman at all years ago about showing responsiveness to treatment. And that is that if you actually had a baseline ultrasound for say CIDP, and then you gave the person a treatment, let's say you gave them three months of intravenous gamma globulin. And let's say at the end of that three months, they were no better clinically. If you did the ultrasound at that point, and it's, you saw that the nerves were significantly smaller, significantly better, that was usually a sign that it was possible, it was probably working and just stay the course, mm -hmm. as opposed to you're three months into your trial of steroids or IVIG or whatnot, the person's no better, and now you ultrasound them and their nerves are identical or they're worse. Mm -hmm. That might give you uh, a much more... Uh, 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 evidence to say, okay, this treatment is not working. I need to move along. Yeah. Because even though we think about like, say, say you do IVIG, you know, we think about IVIG being very good for CIDP, which in general it is, but if you take all comers, it's around 60 to 70% of people respond. Right. Yeah. Which means there's a significant number who don't. So, um, so I'm going to show you the last thing and I'm a, you know, this is, we did ultrasound, a cursory ultrasound okay. of the median nerve from the wrist to the upper arm, not up in the palm. Okay. And the reason I'm going to show you this is because you use the word significant change. And right. the thing that I think maybe, maybe perhaps some people struggle with is what is a significant enlargement? So here, this is the median nerve at the wrist. And again, this is not the high, high quality ultrasound sure. machines, but so the cross-sectional area is 10, 10.8. Yeah, which is and, like our upper limit of normal. So most people would say, gee, a median at the wrist up to 10 is okay. 11 is borderline. 13 or more is probably abnormal. Yeah, and then remember, we the median conduction showed that conduction block and some some dispersion. So in the forearm, right. and I know it's hard, you're seeing a still picture, so you have to trust me that I measured this correctly, but... Yeah. It's 12.5 in that area. Well, it's interesting. It's 12.5. So you also people would say, Jay, normal's up to 10. But in reality, most people's forearms are more of like five, six, seven. So I would look at that nerve and say, you know something? That nerve's too big. Yes. I would say that nerve is supportive of yeah. your diagnosis of uh, the demonic neuropathy. Right. So that was kind of my question is, yeah. you know, it's not a huge change, but but it's larger than you would expect. So. And there's no doubt, the longer you go, the more likely it is for these nerves to enlarge. So as you probably know, if you look at people with Guillain-Barre, which is demonic neuropathy, and CIDP, which is demonic neuropathy, the chance of finding enlarged nerves is much higher in CIDP. Indeed, there's papers on that, also by Dr. Zeidman, about how do you tell like long Guillain-Barre or long AIDP from early CIDP, and the presence of nerve hypertrophy, it doesn't necessarily differentiate them, but the presence of nerve hypertrophy pushes you more towards CIDP. Yeah. And and to show you a picture that I sent you a few months ago, that's not from this case, of course, yes. but you, um, let me show you right here. 
that you said this is the real deal was your quote in your email. So oh, yeah, that's the real really deal. large nerve right. with variable echo intensity and exactly. And it's interesting, CIDP tends to do this. That actually Padua wrote a very nice article about this years ago about different patterns of CIDP. And some the nerve is just enlarged and hypochoic. Others, the individual fascicles are enlarged and hypochoic, but some the high, the fast, some fascicles are hyperechoic, where others are hypoechoic, like your picture there on the left. Yeah. And that's something you really do see in CIDP. Yeah. So if you saw this, yeah, that's no really so, again, as as you as you know, I'm a big I'm a big believer about Bayesian theorem, and there's no test that's absolutely positive or negative, but it's more like it's pushing you towards a diagnosis. It's like, okay, this is very supportive of yeah. this being acquired demyelinating neuropathy. And I think I think the take-home point of this case for me, and see if if you have other final points, is you know the conductions. Yes, they did meet some of the, some of the conductions met criteria. There were these multiple A waves in multiple nerves, and and sure. and there are you alluded to this. There are reports of multiple A waves in GBS, and and in the legs they didn't really the conductions didn't really meet the criteria they did for not. that's right they did but not. you had all these a waves so i think that's a clue for people to be aware of that that's right. in the right clinical context that uh i agree suspicious. and also with the tibial the tibial not having good f waves is distinctly yeah. unusual yeah yeah so yeah. so so you think he has cidp i do so then what happens is that when someone has you think they have cidp well, here's the thing. It's always that clinical electrophysiologic correlation. Does the clinical fit the nerve conductions, fit the needle EMG, in this case, all fit the ultrasound? It all fits. Mm -hmm. As we say, yeah. it's the real thing, baby. Yeah. Okay. It's the real thing, baby. So now, as far as laboratory testing goes, now you can use this more intelligently. So this is a person you do want to get the SPEP and IFE on, for sure. You do want to get the anti-mag antibody. You probably do want to get the HIV uh, on on them. You do want to do a, a metastatic or skeletal survey, looking for an osteosclerotic myeloma. You know, you do want to do that in someone like this. Yeah. Um, you know. Would you uh, do it? Would you do a spinal tap? That's a very interesting question, because I think that when you're done here, I think you can feel incredibly confident that they have CIDP. Mm -hmm. So, do you? Did, would a protein elevation help you? It wouldn't, in other words, let's say the protein was 55. Would it change what you think? Absolutely right. not. Right. If it was 200, would it change what you think? Absolutely not. The only thing that it might change if there were cells, mm -hmm. okay, if there were cells. So let's just make it up. Let's say there were 75 white cells. Well, as we all, as we know, can that rarely happen with Guillain-Barre and CIDP? Yes. However, is it statistically a little bit more common if you have like, Lyme disease with CIDP, if you have HIV with CIDP, and unfortunately the dreaded, do you have a lymphoma with CIDP? Um, you know, that that's one thing that could change it. Yeah. So, And if you look at the criteria that I showed you, the paper that they actually suggested that, that a CSF is not in the, right. if, if, if the patient meets the demyelinating criteria, criteria. and yeah. you do all the other blood work to exclude right. other causes that a CSF is not an absolute requirement. It's not so, an absolute requirement. But this patient, just to give you a follow-up, he did have a CSF. He's not my patient, but yeah. a colleague did it. His protein was a hundred. He didn't have any cells Good. and he's in the process. Again, this is very recent of being treated with IVIG. So 
I don't have any follow up on him, yeah. but I think the the thought was everything was fitting with CIDP. Absolutely. So, so I I hope you I hope you think that's an interesting case. I did. I think it's a great case. <laughs> yeah. Because this this is what we live for. In other words, as neurologists, we do not want to miss things that are treatable. Yeah. This is a treatable thing. Yeah. You know? and, and I think the direction, the approaches. It's nice to hear we take the same approaches, but. Um, that, that there are some alternative or other directions, like with ultrasound and uh, the importance of doing F waves. I think we agree on that, but some people might not. So, you know uh, why one of the reasons we take the same approach? Why? Because years ago, there was at the AANEM meeting, they had a tribute to Ed Lampert. And they said, we'd like all the people in this room who were trained by Ed Lampert to stand up. And a good number of people stand up, stood up. And then they said, now we want people to stand up who were trained by the people who just uh, stood up, okay? And it's like, you know, three quarters of the room stand, stood up. So this Mayo Clinic tradition of EMG is really a great thing, all right? So the person who trained me was John Kelly. John Kelly was a, uh, was a fellow of uh, Ed Lampert, you know? My colleague, Bash Katurji, was trained by Asa Wilborn, who was a fellow of Ed Lampert. And yeah. the thing about the Mayo Clinic tradition was not only did EMG really come from there, but like everything the Mayo Clinic did made sense. It made physiologic sense. That was the great thing about it. It wasn't like, oh, this is the way it is, trust me. No, if you knew your anatomy, you knew your physiology, you knew your pathophysiology, everything made sense. Yeah. That's what was so great about the yeah. Mayo Clinic. And I think that's an important point for all of us that- and it's not just Mayo Clinic, but I think it's, you know, for all of us, when we're approaching patients, we're rushed. You know, we when we got on the call, you know, we both said, yeah, we're busy. It's a busy day. But it's so important to, to take a deep breath, think through every patient, uh, particularly these complicated patients, and do the right tests, expand the testing that we might do otherwise. Um, right. to, so I think that's so important for us to always remember. Absolutely. Because this case, if someone was rushed and he was like a tech brought to a, a study and said, oh, the person sent for peripheral neuropathy. And you say, oh, the serial is low, the median ulnar are low. You know, OK, good. There's a uh, peripheral neuropathy here. Next case. You know what I mean? Yeah. Easy been missed. Yeah. Easy, not the neuropathy missed, but it's like then the person we'd be getting there two hour oral glucose tolerance tests. And yeah. You spend well, a lot of extra money. Right? You know? A lot of right. extra money. They would have missed the diagnosis. And, um, yeah. you know. I will say that when we get complicated cases, sometimes we get to a point where we don't have, we have no idea what's going on. We just take all the electrodes off and say, let's start over yeah. with the history. I and do. With my patients, I say, I know a really good guy in Cleveland. So maybe you can go up there and <laughs> he'll figure it out. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. I appreciate you taking the time. We could talk another couple hours. This is I so bet. fun. And uh, I hope the listeners, I'm sure they'll learn from you and from this discussion. And uh, I really appreciate you, you spending the hour with me. My pleasure. Take care. Thank Happy you. New Year. You too. Well, boy, I really enjoyed that discussion over the last hour. That was chock full of information. As I said in the introduction, Dr. Preston really knows his stuff. Uh, there was so much educational material and just listening to him talk through a case, I think that the the take-home points of this case for me is 
uh, as with every case, think about the clinical situation. Think about localizations before we perform the EMG. From an EMG standpoint, the importance of paying attention to certain criteria for demyelination, the importance of utilizing F waves, looking for absence of F waves or prolongation of F waves, or in rare instances, as in this case, multiple A waves and multiple nerves, which are all signs of possible proximal demyelination. Uh, we didn't get much into ultrasound, but I think that there is certainly a role in ultrasound in demyelinating neuropathies. That's certainly evolving, and I think that that's going to be utilized more and more over time. And uh, we did also talk a little bit about the use of anticoagulation, which is a whole separate topic, uh, but it's good to know that uh, we're always weighing the pros and cons, the risks and benefits, and there that that needle EMG in general is quite safe in patients who are on anticoagulation. So hopefully you learned all of those points. You've learned more about an interesting case of CIDP. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and have a good rest of the day.